Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Thursday, October 27th, 2022. It's been 3,165 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 246 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, so far, our assessment that the ongoing Russian nuclear readiness drills are not a prelude to or an attempt to conceal a nuclear first strike, nor a cover for a treaty-violating nuclear weapons test, has been accurate, despite some scary headlines. Second, We maintain Russia's accusation that Ukraine is preparing to use an improvised nuclear weapon is a disinformation campaign meant to sow fear and division, and an attempt to discredit the Ukrainian government. Third, we maintain that Ukraine holds the battlefield initiative, forcing Russian troops to remain in a defensive posture. That the Russian military is combat-destroyed probably doesn't help things. Fourth, We assess that Russian forces in Belarus remain a credible threat and that an invasion of western Ukraine is possible in the next 40 to 70 days. Fifth, we maintain our assessment that Russian forces are engaged in a withdrawal from Kherson, which will likely continue over the next four to eight weeks despite the GUR statement from Ukraine. Sixth, we maintain that Russian terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure will continue unabated for the foreseeable future until the Ukrainian electrical grid is completely destroyed, and that wide-scale attacks by drones will continue. Seventh, we assess that the Russian mobilization of up to 300,000 troops has exposed the training, logistical, and supply problems in the Russian Federation caused by rampant and unchecked corruption throughout the military command structure. And last, but certainly not least, we maintain that the threat of tactical nuclear weapons being used on the battlefield has become extremely remote. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, did not release geographic information on Russian forces' artillery targets, and there was very little information from the Russian Ministry of Defense and the mill blogger community. There was also very little social intelligence, with communications in Kherson a challenge due to the internet and cellular communication disruption. Data wasn't just low quality in Kherson, but theater-wide. The Russian Ministry of Defense reported fighting from Bruskinsk to Pyotihotki, 
and likely exaggerated claims on the scale of fighting and the number of casualties. The Russian millblogger community neither supported nor echoed these claims. A video by Ukrainian troops demonstrated how bad mud has become in Kherson. The video matches a World War II reporter's description that attempting to walk through Ukrainian mud in the fall was like trying to walk through knee-deep maple syrup. We do link to the video in our full situation report on Patreon, or you could Google search for the Swamp of Sadness in the never-ending story. It's basically the same thing. Quick assessment, though. Poor conditions are likely contributing to the slowdown in operational tempo by both belligerents. The GSAFU made a generic claim of striking barges and pontoon bridge crossings on the Dnipro River, which was supported by Russian claims that multiple river crossings were attacked and it was slowing evacuations from the west bank of the Dnipro. Social media reports claimed a Russian ammunition depot in Miloserka, west of Kherson, was hit by rockets fired by HIMARS, with ammunition cooking off for hours after the strike. Insurgents attacked the police station in Russian-occupied Dniprovska with rocket-propelled grenades, causing damage to the entryway and the lobby. There were no reports of casualties. Operational Command South, or OCS, reported the Ukrainian Air Force conducted six airstrikes and ground forces executed 190 fire missions. Airstrikes focused on suppress and destroy enemy air defense actions, targeting Russian anti-aircraft assets in the Bereslav Rayon and areas of occupied Mykolaiv. Pictures of Russian defenses being built in Novokokhovka on the east bank of the Dnipro emerged, and they are, in a word, amusing. In another word, cute. Look, any defensive structure is better than none, but this is not a model of engineering achievement. Assessment here. The active building of defensive structures and laying mines on the east bank of the Dnipro further indicates that Russian forces intend to withdraw from the west bank of the Dnipro River. Russian forces continued to loot Kherson, including stealing statues and the remains of 18th-century statesman Grigory Potemkin, who was buried in Kherson in 1791. Assessment here. Despite Russian claims that there is no such thing as Ukrainian culture, occupation forces are stealing artwork, historical objects, and statues that highlight Ukrainian culture. Also, sidebar here, the remains of 18th-century statesmen? The remains. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't there other Russian dead who they should be focused on right now? Vitaly Kim, Mykolaiv Oblast administrative and military governor, reported it was relatively quiet across the oblast, with most shelling along the line of conflict and air defenses shooting down three Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 kamikaze drones. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and Zaporizhia. There was no change in the situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, and there was still no update on the three kidnapped Enerhoatam employees. The last update from the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, was on October 18th. Ukrainian air defenses shot down a KH-59 air-to-surface cruise missile designed to attack naval assets but used for ground attack over Dnipropetrovsk. The debris landed in an unpopulated area. 
Russian forces launched smirch rockets from multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS, that landed on the outskirts of Zaporizhia. The attack damaged civilian infrastructure related to utility services. Sporadic artillery fire continued along the line of conflict from the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border to Huliapola to Orekhiv. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southwest Donetsk. The Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, First Army Corps, increased attacks west of Donetsk along a broad front, but did not make any progress, with Ukrainian forces responding with tit-for-tat artillery support. The People's Militia of the DNR Public Relations Channel claimed their forces destroyed a NATO-provided M109A3 self-propelled howitzer, or SPG, two tanks, and nine, quote, armored and automotive vehicles, end quote, without any little shred of evidence whatsoever. Ukrainian forces conducted 367 fire missions on the occupied territories, a significant increase in activity. Southwest of Horlivka, the 1st Army Corps, reinforced by forced conscripts and mobics, attempted to advance on Alexandropil, Krasnohorivka, and Kamyanka in the broadest set of attacks in the region since late August. They were unsuccessful. Pro-Russian mill blogger Rybar claimed that elements of the DNR had advanced into Vodyana, a claim that was not supported by the Russian MOD or other mill bloggers, and denied by Ukrainian sources. The DNR did not share videos showing their forces in Vodyana, nor did their social media channels claim success. Ukrainian sources, on the other hand, reported that an attack on Vodyana had failed and that the DNR militia losses were so large that they had to fall back past their starting position. In our assessment, there is no evidence to support either of these claims, so we did not make any changes to our war map. In addition to Vodyana, there was a direct assault on Avdiivka and attempts to advance into Opitne, Pervomaiske, and the Ukrainian firebase at Nevelske. None of the attacks were successful. The DNR militia also attempted to advance beyond the eastern edge of Marinka and into Novomikhailivka. The advance was also unsuccessful. Quick assessment here. The number of troops involved and the amount of artillery fire is significantly lower than the failed offensive from late July, which resulted in the capture of Piski only after 82 days of attacks and not much else. DNR forces are operating with a combat-destroyed army and fewer resources, while Ukrainian troops have become better equipped and trained with artillery resources that outrange Russian counterbattery. Yesterday's attacks demonstrate that the DNR is in fact attempting another push to encircle Avdivka before the onset of winter weather. Not to be mean or anything, but we do not believe that this effort will be successful. Moving on to northeast Donetsk. The situation was unchanged in Solidar, Bakhmutska, and Bakhmut. Private military company, or PMC Wagner Group, is struggling to stabilize its defensive lines east of Bakhmut and continues to suffer unsustainable losses. The Russian MOD didn't mention the region in its report, and Russian mill bloggers only stated the situation was, quote, unchanged. Ukrainian forces continued their defense of Ivanhrad and repelled another attempted advance on Kurdyumivka. 
Russian forces made another attack on the railroad station in Mayorsk, which was the former Minsk II border crossing point, and could not make any new gains. Nor did they find Wargonzo's Semyon Pegov's toes. Sorry, too soon? In Russian-occupied Shakhtarsk, a fuel train exploded with multiple cars catching fire, which spread to nearby storage tanks. At the time of recording, firefighters were still working to control the situation, with at least one railcar showing it suffered a blevy. That's B-L-E-V-E, or Boiling Liquid Expanding Vapor Explosion. The extent of damage to the railroad infrastructure was unknown, but is likely to be extensive. Occupation officials did not indicate an attack caused the blast, and Ukrainian military leaders did not claim responsibility. In Luhansk, the situation was also largely unchanged. Mercenaries with Wargonzo, which has provided realistic analysis along the Luhansk-Donetsk border since Ukrainian forces retook Lyman, reported that Russian troops were holding Dubrova. Their telegram channel claims that Russian forces are trying to hold defense of the village in the forests southwest of Kremina to prevent a Ukrainian advance. They further acknowledge that Ukrainian troops will likely attempt to bypass Kremina and instead will advance from the south and sever the P-66 highway ground line of communication, called a G-lock, that's a supply line, from the north. Telegram channels were claiming that a pontoon bridge that Russian forces used to access Kremina had been destroyed. Mutual fighting east of Bilohorivka continued with no change in the overall situation, with muddy conditions slowing down the operational tempo. Sergei Haidai, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported the situation was, quote, difficult for the Ukrainian Territorial Guard defending Bilohorivka, and stated that they've been under near-constant attack for 10 days by Luhansk People's Republic or LNR militia forces and PMC Wagner Group. Haidai also reported that up to 60 Russian soldiers, including 10 military officers, were killed in Svatov when their barracks were destroyed. Ukrainian forces have advanced close enough to Svatov to strike the city with M777 155mm artillery and MLRS. Russian sources reported that Ukrainian counter-battery fire was destroying their artillery equipment. More Mobics surrendered to Ukrainian forces near Svatov, claiming they had arrived in the last 10 days and were sent to the front lines at gunpoint and under the threat of imprisonment if they didn't advance. Our assessment here? There are indications that Ukrainian forces are preparing a larger counter-offensive that would work to bypass Kremina and Svatov and Russian mill bloggers are expressing significant angst about having enough capabilities to defend against a larger attack. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at News. In the Cherniv and Sumy region, Dmitro Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported the Hromadas of Yunakivka and Nova Sloboda were hit by mortar shells fired by Russian troops from across the international border. It was a quiet day with only 20 mortar rounds fired, causing no damage or casualties. 
In the Kyiv region, Russian forces launched another round of attacks on the city, but it was unclear if the attacks involved missiles or drones. At least one munition struck the suburbs of Kyiv, creating a fire with black smoke filling the sky. Oleksiy Kuleba, Kyiv Oblast administrative and military governor, reported no injuries and that air defenses had shot down several other targets. Pictures of the fire indicated the strike was in a residential area. In the Black Sea, Crimea, and Odessa region, Russian forces fired a flock, I guess, of Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 kamikaze drones at Odessa, with air defenses shooting down 15 UAVs in the span of two hours. More than two dozen drones were launched across southern Ukraine, with 19 intercepted. Russian sources claim that one drone landed in Ovidiopol, but did not provide supporting evidence. In Russian-occupied Crimea, occupation officials claim that a kamikaze drone struck the Balaklava thermoelectric power plant. Gauleiter Mikhail Razvozhayev, the occupation governor of Sevastopol, said that a transformer farm was damaged in the attack, but electrical service was not impacted. Russia deployed a second submarine in the Black Sea while returning one of the missile carriers to port. The deployed ships of the Black Sea fleet have the capacity to launch up to 16 caliber cruise missiles, half from submarines. On the Russian front, Russian officials reported that the highway portion of the Kerch Bridge, which was severely damaged on October 8th, won't be able to reopen to truck traffic until December at the earliest. It's okay, though. Trucks can take an alternate land route and cross using the ferry, which is only delayed for up to four days. As part of ongoing readiness drills, the Russian Federal Protective Service, or FSO, which is considered the de facto security service for Russian President Vladimir Putin, held a drill in Moscow simulating a response to a coup attempt. The sudden closure of streets around government buildings and the appearance of military units and infantry fighting vehicles caused concern in the Russian Federation capital. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. As we had assessed, scary headlines were produced about Russia's nuclear readiness drills, with USA Today declaring Putin overseas training for massive nuclear strike. Hey, fun fact, NATO military leaders did the exact same thing last week. The readiness drill involved the ballistic nuclear submarine Tula, with the Kremlin reporting that all test-fired missiles reached their planned targets. Speaking of targets, let's talk about Russian mobilization. Russian Mobics continue to desert, with former members of the 752nd Regiment surrendering to Ukrainian forces. The Russian soldiers claim area police collected them at 4 a.m. and sent them to Bilgorod before being deployed into Ukraine with no training. They said they were being treated like cattle, so they surrendered. A wounded mercenary from a PMC Wagner penal unit who was previously sentenced to prison for aggravated murder told Ukrainian forces treating his injuries that out of 50 men in his platoon, only 12 remained alive. His comrades had left him behind after he became incapable of walking. Russian mill blogger Zapisky Veterana complained on Telegram that the Russian MOD was abandoning POWs and not attempting to establish communication with them or work for their release. Veterana wrote, quote, 
Hundreds of questions are sent to me by the relatives of those who are now in captivity or are listed as missing. No one can give relatives a clear answer. The units to which they were assigned do not know anything about their fate. Relatives go around in circles and stumble upon a wall of misunderstanding, indifference, and banal replies. During the Great Patriotic War, Stalin did not recognize the status of prisoners of war of Soviet soldiers, and those who surrendered were immediately considered traitors. The question of prisoners remains open, and again we say that something should be done with this. End quote. A quick editor's note, the emphasis in the last sentence is in fact in the original statement. It's, it's in bold. Russian forces lost another senior officer with the confirmed death of Lieutenant Colonel Radyanov D.V., whose body was collected by Ukrainian forces. Radyanov became the 97th Russian lieutenant colonel killed in action since February 24th and the 154th senior officer or general killed. In St. Petersburg, university students gathered to applaud their university professor, Denis Skopjan, who had spent 10 days in jail for participating in an anti-war protest. Skopjan received a summons for conscription into the Russian military because everyone knows that anti-war protesters make excellent and motivated soldiers. The Security Council of the Russian Federation declared that Nazis are out and Satanists are in. Or maybe it's the other way around? Dropping months of messaging that Ukraine needed to be denazified, the Kremlin has now declared that the special military operation is a holy war for Christians and Muslims to join together and desatanize Ukraine and defeat their Jewish financial backers. Alexei Pavlov, the assistant secretary of the Russian Security Council, claimed there were hundreds of satanic sects in Ukraine supported by their, quote, richer patrons. The joining with Muslims messaging was to prevent alienating Colonel General and aspiring dentist Don Don Ramzan Kadyrov and his followers, as well as Russian nationals in the Central Republics. Despite the claim, in the Russian Orthodox Church and 21st century Rasputin Alexander Dugin's view, Muslims are an enemy that will be eliminated as part of Russian Mir. Editor's note, take all the time you need to make that make sense. Once again, it has been exactly zero days since someone threatened nuclear war. Russian propagandist Vladimir Solovyov appears to be going through the stages of grief over the failure of the special military operation in a very public way. On Tuesday, he declared that Russia should warn the residents of Kharkiv and Mykolaiv that they have 48 hours to leave the cities and then destroy them with nuclear weapons. During the same show, Solovyov's panelists suggested using nuclear weapons to destroy SpaceX Starlink satellite internet service. What? It's like they went to the Wiley Coyote School of Diplomacy. When asked about a potential response, one of the pundits said, quote, Everyone will die and go to heaven. End quote. What? Because, you know, it's a holy war against Satanists. Okay, anyway. Despite a series of clearly staged videos from the Kremlin showing well-equipped Russian mobics being trained under the watchful eye of President Putin and Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu in separate visits, Moscow admitted that training and equipping troops has not gone to plan. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov admitted there are serious issues, but of course claimed, quote, vigorous measures being taken to rectify the situation are already yielding the first positive results, 
end quote. Previously, we had assessed that the Russian Federation was incapable of mobilization because the systems required to do it effectively did not exist, and the Russian military was already dealing with supply issues before partial mobilization was announced. And this admission by the Kremlin absolutely supports that assessment. President Putin told the Commonwealth of Independent States security officials that Ukraine has, quote, lost sovereignty and is just a battering ram for the United States to try to destroy the Russian Federation. Russian State Duma Deputy Vyacheslav Volodyan declared that Ukraine was under occupation by the United States to be turned into a colony, and that the Pentagon has full control over the Ukrainian military. He also claimed that Ukraine couldn't pay its citizens or pensioners, and the Kiev economy was destroyed. So I guess Russia needs to colonize Ukraine then? There's a lot of projection going on here, just a lot of projection. But hey, all is going to plan, right? I mean, besides the training and equipping troops part. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. WNBA and Olympic athlete Brittany Griner's appeal for drug trafficking charges was denied by a Moscow court. Griner was detained days before Russia launched its wide-scale invasion of Ukraine for having vape cartridges with TCH, the active chemical in marijuana. The 31-year-old Houston native has become a diplomatic pawn, with the appeals court sentencing her to nine years in a Russian prison colony. Russia and Ukraine conducted another prisoner-of-war exchange with a one-for-one release of ten soldiers each. The body of United States national and volunteer fighter Joshua Jones, who was killed in August, was also returned as part of the exchange. In geopolitical news, the Polish Senate voted unanimously to recognize Russia as a terrorist state. The measure stated, quote, the cruel practices of the Stalinist and Nazi regimes must be defeated and deprived of the possibility of endangering its neighbors. End quote. In economic news, Ford and Mercedes-Benz announced they were joining Nissan and fully withdrawing from the Russian market. Production and sales had stopped months ago, with both automakers continuing to pay their workforce and providing warranty support. The ruble was unchanged, with the exchange rate holding at 61 for one U.S. dollar. Oil prices climbed, with WTI increasing to $88 a barrel and Brent jumping to $96. United States RBOB wholesale gasoline on the spot market was stable at $2.90 a gallon or $0.77 cents a liter. EU Dutch TTF natural gas futures climbed to 104 euros per megawatt hour for November 2022 contracts, and Chicago SRW wheat futures climbed to $8.49 per bushel for December 2022 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.